0: Hey folks, I'm Nick DeLisandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. I'm glad to be here with you this week. Times are complicated right now in the state of Florida and frankly, on a day-to-day basis, it gets a little tough to think too much about our home state. Feels like a lot of people around the country, around the world are keeping an eye on us right now and it feels a little fraught right now with all the things up in the air with the way that that things are going for us news has been tough to read but i'm thankful for all the journalism and reporting being done concerning the state of florida and its troubles it just gets a little heartbreaking which is why this show uh, is and always has been a special comfort to me getting to make it finding stories of history of survival of change brings me a lot of peace And I'm grateful I get to share these stories with you. So thank you for tuning in this season, especially. I know it's not always fun to feel the parallels between history and today, and uh, but I feel it's necessary. Thank you for showing up. So with all that in mind, we had an intense pair of episodes the last few weeks, deep dives into history of protests and war and conflict. It's essential stories, and those parallels to today, like I said, are astounding. But I think we're gonna take a breather. We're gonna. Take a breather as summer approaches and spring winds down. If you need a break, let's take one together. So let me tell you a few stories from the season that got left on the cutting room floor, topics that I couldn't fit into the episode, but I think you'd enjoy hearing about. Everything from the difficult feat of moving home, uh, an important figure in modern American dance, and a few other topics. But where shall we start? Well, if you don't mind, let's talk about last week because I think it proves the point of why I wanted to tell you these stories in the first place. So, last week we talked about the Mayday protest, the massive protests in Washington, D.C. against the American military's presence in Vietnam that resulted in the largest mass arrest in American history. 12,000 people. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, 12,000 people were arrested. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to that episode. We also talked about the Gainesville Eight, a group of protesters who were charged with conspiracy after a government agent planted lies to incite violence from them they were freed and their point was made about the negative impact of the war but we didn't talk much about the national presence of the organization most of them were involved in seven of the eight of them were veterans but they were all a part of the vietnam veterans against the war the vvaw an activist group that was hugely influential during these anti-war protest times As the name of the organization suggests, they were made up of veterans who had served, who had seen the Vietnam War firsthand, and came home touting the need for the war to come to an end. Most of them would go on to live regular lives after the war was over, and some of them saw a much more influential future ahead of them. This is a clip from April 18th, 1971, just a week before protesters would begin to gather in Washington, D.C., less than two weeks before May Day took over the nation's capital. This is Meet the Press from NBC, and here are their guests on that episode from April 18, 1971. Our guests today
1: on Meet the Press are two leaders of Vietnam Veterans Against the War, Al Hubbard, a former Air Force captain, and John Kerry, a former Navy Lieutenant J.G.
0: Al Hubbard and John Kerry. Let's hear from the second gentleman, John
1: Kerry. Mr. Kerry, are you opposed just to the war in Vietnam, or are you opposed to all wars? I would like to be opposed to all wars. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we are in a position as a nation or as a world at this moment to be, uh, but I, am, I, I don't really think that's the issue. I think the question is really the opposition to this war and why we are opposing this war at this time and what we have to say here in Washington in the next week. He is referring to the May Day protests, in case that wasn't clear. We are down here to demand that those who call themselves the most committed of all in this country, namely the senators and congressmen who've been talking peace for the past few years, that these men exercise their responsibility, granted them by the Constitution of this country, to end this war. And that is what we are here to demand. And we're here to demand it because we are the men who have seen what is happening in Southeast Asia. And we believe that there is no reason and no excuse and no justification For the loss of one more American life there, or for the loss of more Vietnamese, this war can be ended, and it should be ended now, and that is what we're here to say. We're here to say it, and we bring a new kind of uniqueness, in that we are the first veterans of any war, while that war is going on, to come back and say no to that war.
0: Eloquently spoken, you can see why that man would one day run for president, and is currently in the cabinet of the sitting president, Joe Biden. Perhaps you didn't put the name together when I said it earlier, or perhaps you've never heard his name, but that was John Kerry. John Kerry, born in Colorado in 1943, was raised in a military family, traveling around the country throughout his early life. He graduated from Yale, became a lawyer at Boston College, and joined up with the Naval Reserve in 1966. When he returned from the Vietnam War, he began speaking out against the cause, joined with the veterans protesting, and would be arrested in late May of 1971, along with hundreds of others. Not at May Day for a different protest at that time though it does seem that he was at Mayday. He would work as a lawyer until becoming the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts in 1982, then a Senator for Massachusetts in 1984, where he remained until 2013, when he became the Secretary of State under President Barack Obama during Obama's second term. He also notably ran for president in 2004 as the Democratic candidate, hoping to take the job from then-President George W. Bush. One major point of contention during that presidential campaign was their military records. Kerry served in Vietnam. Bush's political leader father, George H.W. Bush, protected him from having to serve himself. Kerry lost the 2004 election. I was a kid at that time, and that was kind of the first presidential election that I ever really knew of. I didn't really know what a presidential election was until that one. So I remember John Kerry and his very long face vividly. Today, John Kerry is the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, a title that was established under President Joe Biden, making John Kerry the very first person to hold that title. But 52 years ago, John Kerry was a 27-year-old veteran who was trying to make an impact A protester, the same as everyone else. I had read his name during the research for those episodes and didn't feel the need to weave it into the story. He has no real connection to Florida and it didn't feel entirely necessary. But my grandmother, who listens every week and usually sends me some notes about the episodes, she texted me to remind me about John Kerry, and she's right. It's fascinating how many people had a part in these Mayday protests. People who are one line of research in a massive historical record that could be teased out into its own massive story. John Kerry is a great example. That clip that I played of John Kerry perfectly illustrates what I'm talking about. I said there was two men in the interview. John Kerry, the other was Al Hubbard.
1: Well, I think I was fully aware before I went to Vietnam that our country was wrong in what it was doing.
0: Al Hubbard has a fascinating story all his own. He may not have even served in the military at all, which is a controversy all its own, but we don't have time for that story. We have to move on. There's so much more to talk about, but that's exactly my point and exactly the theme of this episode. A throwaway line, a throwaway name, a fact, a date, an event that I mention in brief or read quickly in an account of an event. It's a whole person, the whole story. And a memory of this event from their perspective. They have their own narrative, their own version of events. Every name that is said in these episodes that I don't pay mind to more than just one sentence or, or just a throwaway mention of their name. They live a whole life. Every journalist, every figure, every, every date had its own story. John Kerry was just one part of Mayday, not necessarily relevant to the whole story, but he was <laughs> it was and is a hugely influential figure in American politics. Al Hubbard, who was there at that Meet the Press interview, a very interesting figure in American history concerning the Vietnam War. So when we talk about these stories, we have to remember every single one of those names and details and events could be a story all its own. All you have to do is shift the focus. The protester becomes the senator if you just move the timeline up 14 years. It's as simple as that. Similarly, if you take the career of one man, one legend of a sport, and you fast forward it from his prime to the end of his career, you'll find that he never stopped making an impact, never stopped hitting extremely long home runs in the state of Florida. I am, of course, talking about Babe Ruth. He was on my mind this week, the 18th of April. Wasn't that the... that's a weird coincidence. The 18th of April... wait a second. The 18th of April is when... John Kerry was on TV talking about... Uh, that's just a coincidence that I realized as I was reading the script of this episode out loud to you. That's weird. Well, April 18, 2023 was the 100th anniversary of the opening of Old Yankee Stadium, the fabulous Coliseum that is still one of the most iconic venues in sports, even though the original stadium closed in 2008. The original stadium opened... On April 18th, 1923, and the first home run ever hit in that stadium was a three-run blast by one of the greatest sluggers of all time, the unstoppable Babe Ruth. Coincidentally, a home run was hit in the new Yankee Stadium on the 100th anniversary. It was not hit by a Yankee, however, but by a member of the opposing team, the Los Angeles Angels. The hitter was Shohei Otani, a modern-day slugger who has garnered many comparisons to Babe Ruth. Both are known for the fact that they are what's called two-way players. They can both pitch very well, and they can hit powerful, towering home runs. Pretty much no one in the history of baseball has been able to do it as well as Babe Ruth did, until Shohei Ohtani, and Shohei Ohtani arguably is doing it even better than Babe Ruth did. Two home runs, 100 years apart, hit by startlingly similar men. The only difference is that one was born in the Butcher District of Baltimore in 1895, and the other was born in rural Japan in 1994. Actually, you know what? It's They were born a year, uh, 99 years apart, but Shohei Otani's birthday is not for a little while, so that means that they were actually, this is weird, they were both 28 when they hit their home runs at Yankee Stadium. That's crazy, they were the same age. I'm discovering even more coincidences. Yeah, I, I just double-checked. They were both... That's crazy. They both hit these home runs in the twenty in their 28th year. The first home run in Yankee Stadium on opening day of Yankee Stadium, April 18th, 1923. He was 28 years old. Shohei Otani hit a home run on the 100th anniversary of the opening of old Yankee Stadium. Obviously, he hit it in new Yankee Stadium, but he was 28. That is, That's crazy. Anyway, back to Babe Ruth. The coincidences, though, are kind of blowing my mind. Anyway, Shohei Otani trained with his Angels this spring in Arizona as half the teams in the MLB prepare for the season at West. The other half, however, play their spring exhibition games in Florida. We've talked about it a ton. You know about this. You know the drill. We talked about it a few months ago because we talked about one of Babe Ruth's many accolades. He apparently hit the longest home run ever, if not the longest home run ever hit in Florida. According to the historic marker in Tampa that notes where the ball stopped, the ball went 587 feet from his bat, an astronomical distance, though some say that that number has been beaten since, but at the time, no one had ever seen anything like that. Since the episode came out, I learned something that might the the ball might have rolled it might not have landed 587 feet it might have landed 530 feet and then rolled 50 feet which is still impressive but uh not not quite the same it did land 587 feet well okay well what if i told you just let's make it even better let's sweeten the deal what if i told you that babe ruth allegedly allegedly hit one that actually landed over 600 feet from where he hit the ball. I repeat, this is alleged. All of these old numbers from a century ago get a little um, exaggerated. There's no way to really know. But as far as we know, he did hit one over 600 feet here in Florida. This comes from a Tampa Bay Times column titled, Babe Ruth left a mark on St. Pete's spring training history. The author is Will Michaels. Go check out that article at the link in the episode description. Here's what it has to say. It was 1934. Babe was pushing 40, and the 1934 season would be his last with the Yankees. He officially would retire in 1935, but his pop hadn't faded in all those years. That home run that has the marker and is considered his longest home run was hit in 1919, 15 years earlier. But now, Babe had lived a lot more life and played a lot more baseball. In 1934, Babe came to train in Florida, but things were going poorly for him health-wise. Quote, prior to spring training, he came down with the flu and lost 16 pounds, end quote. But now, spring training was in full swing, pun intended, and Babe was ready to show that he could still make a dent on a baseball. In an exhibition game against the Boston Braves, Ruth showed how strong he still was even as he got older. He had been crushing baseballs through spring training already, but this home run was special. They were playing at Waterfront Park, a now-demolished baseball field that sat at the time very near where Al Lang Stadium currently sits in St. Petersburg, Florida. If you know downtown St. Pete, it's just north of the Dali Museum, and it's a straight shot four minutes via car east of Tropicana Field, where the Tampa Bay Rays currently play. So it's right next to each other. That's where Babe Ruth hit this ball. Though the Yankees trained at a different stadium the Boston, Braves played at Waterfront Park, and that's where Babe Ruth continued his legend. It was March 25, 1934, when Babe Ruth obliterated a baseball in front of a crowd of 1,200. First-hand accounts from the Time Report, maybe jokingly, that the ball flew so far that it bounced off a balcony of the nearby hotel, the West Coast Inn, where the Boston Braves were staying at the time. Whether it was legitimate or not, the official number, the official distance of that home run, 624 feet that's 30 something feet longer than the uh, supposed longest one where the marker stands according to this article quote the distance was verified by george f young incorporated in 2008 measuring from the old plate location at waterfront to the now demolished west coast inn end quote that company mentioned it's a civil engineering and surveying firm they got engineers involved in figuring out how far this ball went. So they use those first-hands accounts that say it hit where the hotel was. So whether or not it actually did, that is the number. The article goes on to say, "Quote: According to Tim Reed of the Committee to Commemorate Babe Ruth, the West Coast Inn home run is believed to be perhaps the longest ever hit off Major League pitching. Reed, an engineer, estimates the distance in the air as no less than 610 feet. End quote. So you know how Pensacola and St. Augustine war over which was actually the first European settlement? I think that Tampa and St. Pete need to start a new rivalry. Which town is home to Babe Ruth's longest homer? Is it the 580 something one in Tampa that has the marker? Or is it the 600 and something one in St. Pete? I don't want to pick a side, but one side got engineers involved in measuring the home run, so that's all I'm saying. You You, you make your own judgment on that. It's amazing how little things just hide in bigger stories, and it's hard to not dig into every little rabbit hole you find yourself in. Seeing all those numbers, seeing how they were hit, it makes me want to go look at every single baseball game that those big home runs that Babe Ruth hit. Who was pitching? What's their story? How did that team get its name? That's, that's the central conceit of this show, right? Is I cannot help myself when it comes to these things, but sometimes I have to. If I fell into every little rabbit hole that I discovered, the shows would be untenable, I think. So, for example, while researching this year's episode about Zora Neale Hurston, I found a name that I'd never heard of before. Zora Neale Hurston, of course, being the famous author from Florida. I'm looking at my collection of her books right now. She's amazing. If you haven't read her books, you know what? Summer's a great time to pick up a copy. So go read Their Eyes Were Watching God. Go see more of why Zora Neale Hurston was such a significant figure in Florida history. So this year, we talked about Zora's production that she put on at Rollins College, a collection of black folk stories and music that was the culmination of her her anthropological work that that she turned into a theatrical text she had been working to develop a theatrical production of some kind but could never find the right way to make it work and had failed repeatedly only to find an opportunity at rollins college in winter park just a few miles up the road from her hometown of eatonville florida And one of the things I mentioned in that episode is that that production garnered her lots of attention. Notably, it allowed her the opportunity to write and publish her first book. But it also gained her attention from significant figures of the time. This next excerpt is from the book Wrapped in Rainbows by Valerie Boyd, an incredible and comprehensive book about Zora's life. I must recommend it. Here's what it says about Zora's production's acclaim. Quote, Over the next few months, the group successfully performed in several Florida cities, and Hurston developed a strong reputation for her folk concerts throughout the state. The people at Rollins thought so well of her that in March, when noted dancer Ruth St. Dennis visited the campus, Hurston and her troupe were invited to do a special half-hour performance, end quote. Unless, perhaps, you are a student of modern dance in America, that name probably doesn't ring a bell. It didn't ring a bell for me. Ruth St. Dennis, it's a pretty significant name, and if it was mentioned in these historical records, had to be someone significant, right? Well, I looked her up. Ruth St. Dennis is considered a pioneering figure in modern American dance, and a somewhat controversial one, I will say. Born in 1879, Ruth, that's funny, another coincidence, Babe Ruth, Ruth St. Dennis, boy. Ha <laughs> ha what a tapestry i'm weaving for you (laughs) the name ruth appeared twice in this episode the coincidences have no limit anyway (laughs) ruth St. dennis was born in 1879 she worked as a dancer from a child doing vaudeville and broadway as she grew up as she became more and more of a dancer she began to study more modern styles of dancing from around the world Ruth started collecting these dancing styles of, of various different countries and started incorporating them into her pieces. She studied Hindu philosophy and artistic styles, basing one of her most popular pieces, titled Radha, on a myth based around the Hindu god Krishna. Her pieces used Indian and Hindu styling and philosophy and incorporated mysticism and Indian aesthetics in her costumes, in her dance, and her music. She took the piece all over the world as a soloist. Imagine that, just watching one person dance on stage. That was Ruth's whole career. That was how she made her money. That was how she made her reputation. She would often incorporate other Eastern dance styles into her performances, including some in Japanese-style dancing and other styles of quote-unquote South Asian dance. This era of her career has been accused of Orientalism, which is a term used to describe when Westerners present a sensationalized and or fictionalized version of Eastern cultures to Western audiences. It's sort of the word I've seen thrown around is commodification, sort of using Eastern cultures, which are very much a part of people's lives and using them for profit to turn them into art that that a Westerner can use to to advance their career or artistic stylings it's if you want to read more about that there's some really interesting academic papers that i gave a glance at that are about ruth saint Denis and the accusations against her of orientalism it's 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 very curious so if you're interested in that sort of topic if you're a fan of dance or or that sort of cultural work i would recommend uh, checking those pieces out Whether her work is Orientalism or not is up to you to decide, but Ruth's impact at the time was profound. She's best known for bringing modern dance to an accessible place for the American public. She wanted modern dance to be about what the dancer was feeling, even if the performance itself wasn't a technical masterpiece. Put on a show with your heart, that's what audiences want to see. She also promoted dance education, opening some of the first dance schools around the country. One such school was called Denishon, a portmanteau of her name and her husband's, Ted Sean, Dennis Sean Dennis Shawn. Dennis, Shawn. Dennis Shawn was founded in 1915 in Los Angeles, and its most famous alumni... Well, that would be Martha Graham, one of the mothers of modern dance in America, a hugely influential figure, one of the most essential artists in the entire history of 20th century dance. You might not know anything about dance, and you've probably heard the name Martha Graham. Maybe it's from that scene in the birdcage where Robin Williams is dancing and he says, Martha Graham, Martha Graham, that's Martha Graham. She was a real person. Look her up. She's incredible. I think it proves my point, however. Martha Graham is only a line in the backstory of yet another historical figure. Martha Graham could be a story all her own, but unfortunately, not many connections to Florida as far as I can tell. So, Martha Graham, I'm sorry to say you might not get an episode of Wait 5 Minutes dedicated to your history. No disrespect, I'm a big fan. Nevertheless, that night, Ruth St. Dennis saw Zora's show at Rollins, and upon seeing the show, Ruth had a suggestion, quote, the modern dance pioneer wanted to perform with Zora's group as soloist dancer, end quote. About the idea of Ruth performing with Zora's show, Zora said, quote, I know it's novelty publicity seeking, but it will help us nevertheless, end quote. As far as I can tell, the collaboration never went through, but the praise stuck. Zora clearly saw that every bit of praise heaped on from significant figures at the time would lead to her success, and she was right. That was before she was known. That was before she had a name, and everybody, including Ruth St. Dennis, touting the accomplishments of Zora Neale Hurston, helped her career to succeed. And now you know who Ruth St. Dennis is. Congratulations. You can probably bring it up on Jeopardy at some point. Sometimes, however... It's not always so satisfying. Sometimes you read about Zora, you see the name Ruth St. Denis, you research her, you learn a bit about her. She's got a whole story. Sometimes, however, you read a line in a newspaper article or a book or a website, a date, a name, and it derails you. You can't get it out of your head. I have spent hours writing this show and gotten lost on topics that I never even included, because there was never anything more to say, as much as I wish there was. Trust me, if you knew how many rabbit holes I could fall down during the production of this show, you'd be amazed that the episodes don't get off the handle a little more often. History is full of nooks and crannies, and one of the worst feelings is when you want so badly to learn more, but the results turn up dry. Such is the case with the history of the Gregory House in Florida. The Gregory House is within the boundaries of the Terea State Park, which we visited this March with our friend Lily Anderson-Messick of the Florida Native Plant Society. We visited the Terea State Park because it's named for and home to some of the native Florida tree that Lily works to protect, the Florida Terea. Listen to both her episodes to learn more about that. But we went in search of the tree and discovered something even more. Despite its name, the state park doesn't just hold specimens of the rare Terea tree. It also has scars of Civil War battle and a massive white home, right smack dab in the middle of the property. That is the Gregory House. Named for its owner, former resident of the Carolinas, Jason Gregory, the Gregory House was built in 1849 in the early years of Florida's statehood. It was a fairly typical southern manor for the time, resembling other southern houses, with a few Florida-focused details that were distinctly Floridian, like shutters for our pervasive sun. It sat right on the Apalachicola River back in those days, and, quote, it originally sat on five foot high brick pillars to protect it from flooding, end quote. Look at a picture of Gregory House. It's hard to imagine it sitting on brick pillars. That must have been a sight. Very strange. But for as lovely as the Gregory House is aesthetically, its history is quite grim. It was a plantation home. The original home where it originally stood was built in 1849. It was built by enslaved persons. The owner, Jason Gregory, was a slave owner who grew cotton here in Florida. From the early 1850s to the end of the Civil War, Gregory's cotton business that prospered on the backs of enslaved persons persisted. When the war was over and slavery was abolished, Gregory went bankrupt. He fled the home. His daughter would buy it back eventually. Quote, his youngest daughter lived in it from about 1900 until her death in 1916. End quote. For 20 years, it was empty until 1935. That was when the state got a hold of it and made it a part of the Torreya State Park. The Torreya State Park was one of the very first, and alongside the draw of unique trees, the park's historical significance could be noted with the presence of this old house. There's only one catch. The house wasn't originally in the location that it is today within the boundaries of Torreya State Park. It was originally... Just across the river, due west from the location it currently sits, on a spot of land called Ochisi Landing. Ochisi Landing has a history all its own, but again, we don't have time. Talk about it another time. Gregory House was across the river from its current location, and it is not a small river. The banks on either side have significant elevation to them. The Gregory House is actually quite high up, if we're being honest. I've seen one document say that it's on a 160-foot knoll. That's tall. Well, here's all you're gonna get on that topic of, of how it moved. A nineteen eighty nine article from the Orlando Sentinel about the house reads, quote, it was dismantled in nineteen thirty five and moved over the next three years by the Civilian Conservation Corps to its present site in Torreya State Park. End quote. I'm sorry? They moved the house piece by piece across the river? Did they did they actually cross the river? Was there a bridge? Did they go around? Like it says It doesn't, there's no, there's nothing more about it. How did it get there? I found an article from the Panama City News Herald from February 23rd, 1975. It says the following about the move, quote, the project took more than three years since each piece was painstakingly transported, even the wooden pegs, end quote. How? I need more information. (laughs) Was it across, did they build a bridge? Did they walk through the river? Did they float? I mean, the river's big. How did this happen? There's no more information, apparently I'm the only one who's curious about this. They took apart a house and rebuilt it on the opposite side of the river like a Lego set? Nobody else finds that totally crazy? Well, my curiosity unfortunately reaches a dead end, that's all I can find about this. I'll just have to imagine the Civilian Conservation Corps guys moving a house, board by board, over the river. Did they like pass it, like a, like a fire drill? I don't know. I'll never know, I guess. But I suppose that one word that I mentioned back there is uh, the summation of all these stories, curiosity. This show has made me more and more curious over the last several years, a trait that has become one of the traits I'm most proud of in myself. Some of my favorite creators are known for their curiosity. Think of Mary Roach, one of my favorite authors, former guest on this show. She spoke on this show about her curiosity and how it leads her everywhere. It's why she's so successful as an author. She asks questions. She's curious. It's one of my favorite traits of the great Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers himself. He always asked questions. He always wanted to know more, even as he got older. I'm far more curious right now than I ever have been, and sometimes when I think of early episodes of this show, I wonder what those stories could have looked like if I had that knack for curiosity that I have now. I say that because of one specific thing I found while reading through one of my favorite Florida books this week. One of the first books I read that inspired this show is a modern classic, The Swamp, by Michael Grunwald, a staggering and exceedingly readable nonfiction book about the history of the Everglades. I read it ages ago when I first started this show, and I've used it as a source in many episodes. I picked it up just this week and searched for the name of a new friend, Hugh Willoughby. We talked about Hugh just a few weeks ago, he worked with the Wright brothers, he pioneered some of the earliest ships in modern flight, he was a fascinating character and a lover of Florida. Well, he was also well known for his trip through the Everglades that he took thanks to his friendship with train mogul and recurring character on this podcast, Henry Flagler. Well, here's how Willoughby is referred to in this book. The previous paragraph used a quote that referred to the Everglades as a waste wilderness. Here's the quote about Willoughby. This quote-unquote waste wilderness was still so obscure that in 1897, Flagler's friend Hugh Willoughby, a former naval officer, embarked on a Lewis and Clark-style journey of discovery across the Everglades in a dugout canoe. This is no disrespect to Michael Grunwald, he's an amazing author, but it delights me to no end to see a man who was an early pilot, an early aircraft engineer, a friend of the Wright brothers, it delights me that he is simply referred to as Flagler's friend. Michael Grunwald, just like me, had a lot of story to tell and only a little bit of time to tell it, so Willoughby's backstory got left on the cutting room floor. I get it. But if I had been curious all those years ago when I first read this book, if I had said, who's that Hugh Willoughby guy? I bet I would have learned about him a long time ago. I bet I would have learned about a guy who I greatly admire. If only I had been more curious. So that's my advice to you as we finish April, as we head into summer, as we deal with so many problems, as we think a lot about the things that that confuse us the things that we don't understand in this world it feels and I'm not the first certainly not the first person to say this but it feels sometimes like some of the mistakes that we make as a country as a people is based on the fact that we react impulsively to things that we don't understand so to that I implore you to be curious it's a great big world of things that we don't understand and there are answers I'm sure to a lot of the questions you have so be curious I think you'll find that you're a lot better off if you are. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you enjoyed this episode, I think it's a pretty fun episode. I, I laughed a lot. Hopefully you did too. If you think there's someone who would enjoy this episode to get them into the podcast, send it along to them. I'd love for the show to keep growing. I'm so grateful that it has continued to grow over the last five years of this show. So You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps the show grow. I really appreciate it. Or you can share the show on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod or send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I'd love for you to help the show grow and I'd love for you to tell me what you enjoy about this podcast. I've included some links in the episode description to some topics that we talked about this week and links to the episodes that were referenced in this episode from throughout this season. Go check those out if you hadn't listened to those episodes as well. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. I do not own the rights to that Meet the Press clip. That is on the NBC News YouTube channel. I'll include a link to that original video so you can go watch the whole thing. It is fascinating, especially if you know who John Kerry is to go see him at such a young age before he became such a significant figure. Very, very interesting uh, interview. So go check that out. All right, next week, May 1st the last episode of the season it's Day, and we are going to end this season with a great story that you are going to love i will see you next monday for the season finale of this spring season until then be good to yourself be good to others drink more water and as our friend zora neil would say go gator and muddy the water have a great end to your april i will see you next monday may 1st have a good week